Um, have you ever noticed that um, the older you get, now this doesn't apply to you teenagers, okay? It doesn't apply at all. But have you ever noticed that the older you get, you start thinking after a while, the less you know? Does that, does that kind of make sense? But you know what I really think it is? I, I think really what it is, it's, it's the Lord, maybe at least one part of it, not this, this in the whole Megillah, but at least part of that is, is that when you were younger, there's some things you thought you understood and you just didn't. You thought you knew and you just didn't. And then as you get older and you slow down a little bit and you begin to um, have a little experience in life, the things you thought you knew just kind of disappear. And all of a sudden, you know, some of the more important stuff just kind of, God just signs a spotlight on it. And so uh, that's kind of where I'm at this morning with uh, the word I want to share with you. Um, never ceases to amaze me how God's word always seems new and how you can always see stuff in it. When you come back to it and read it, maybe a second or third time or a few months or a few years, you know, how it just it seems different. It seems like God just puts words and stuff in there that he hadn't had in there before. It's almost like somebody has almost rewritten the stuff on the pages and you see new applications. And, and sometimes I think that's really why we think that, um, you know, we didn't know anything to start with. And, and the older you get, the less you know. It's simply because you, you find new applications to life. And you find new applications to truth. And um, if we can always learn, if we keep our heart and our mind in a position to always learn. And, and just to be open to what God has to say. His word will never become dull, and uh, the bread we receive from him will never become stale. And uh, he's, just, he's just woven that wonderful quality into the fabric of his word and also into the, into, into the, um, into the fabric of just loving Jesus okay? and, and just enjoying who he is. There's always there's new adventures on every turn, and uh, sometimes just when you think you've got it figured out, boom, you get a curveball. So this morning, I don't know that I'm going to really tell you anything new, but I'm going to show you, we're going to compare something in just a second, and we're going to look at something from the scripture that in two places I think that you've heard over and over and over again, we're going to put a couple things side by side and look at it and, and see what God's trying to tell us. So on Sunday morning here, those of you who um, come here frequently, you know, we like to mix a little of the supernatural in terms of teaching with, with the practical. Because we are supernatural beings living a human life. That's who we are. And we want to have a safe place. We want to have a place you can relax and you can learn. And uh, just uh, so your mind and your heart can absorb different things. Now, this morning I want to go to the book of Ephesians, first chapter. I think beginning maybe in verse 15. I gave Sister Janie the scripture. And, and there it is. Um... The book of Ephesians is very special to me. Um, in my experience, um, I was raised as a Baptist, a very conservative Baptist, and the book of Ephesians was always right out there in the forefront of um, doctrinal teaching. Okay, And it's, it's sort of what we cut our teeth on, that and the book of Romans. Okay, The basic fundamental bedrock of the Christian faith. Paul's, Paul, as he laid out the theology of Jesus Christ, those are two places where it just really comes through strong. And so having my teeth cut in the book of Ephesians when I went to seminary, uh, my master's thesis was written on Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14. And I'm not going to preach a thesis this morning, but I do want to take chapter 15, I mean verse 15. And I want to go there for a little while. And then I want to go to Revelation for just a minute, and, and we'll just kind of get this thing going, hopefully, as, uh, as the Lord Jesus wants it revealed, at least for this morning. And, and by the way, okay, um, I think sometimes, you know, we get upset or a little agitated whenever um, somebody teaches and they don't look at it exactly like we do. You know, and you, you go away thinking, well, that's not the way I'd have taught that, or that's not the way I'd have presented that. 
You know, the way I teach or preach is just one in a myriad of ways. One in a myriad of applications. One aspect. One dimension. You are never, ever, ever going to get the full expression of gospel truth or doctrine in one sermon. It's not going to happen. By the same token, you'll never get the full blast of practical teaching in one lesson or one session or one worship encounter or or one preaching session or one conference. It's too big for that. And so when we come to it, we, we just usually take a look at just one aspect of the Word. That's why it's important for us to stay in the Word all the time. That's why it's important for us to listen to sound teaching. That's why it's important for us to invest ourselves in the Word of God. Okay? And especially you need to do that for yourself. Because the very minute and the very day that you go anywhere, it doesn't matter anywhere, whether it's here or whether it's any church in town or whether it's in a home group or whether it's private devotions, you know, uh, the very minute that you think you've got the full-blown handle on things, then that's where you begin to slip away. Okay, So you need, you need exposure to the Word, and I believe you need it from a variety of different angles. One of the things that the early church was not afraid to do, and we'll see a little bit of that in just a second, the early church was never afraid to be still and patient with teaching and and. and and, and doctrinal positions. For example, the Bereans, the word says that they studied those things daily to see if they were so. But as we examine the word and as we sort of, as, as, we, as we search for, for truth and as we search for position and as we search for those nuggets in the word that we can apply to our life, we need to make sure that it's founded or it's found in the word. Okay? You need to be there. Now, just kind of up front, I'm just going to make a general statement and then we'll just sort of wade out into this thing. And here's the general statement. <clears throat> the Ephesians, and we'll see this in a second, the church at Ephesus reflects at least one um, characteristic of the church today in that the church at Ephesus had been given some of the finest teaching on soteriology. Now, soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. Okay? They had been given some of the finest teaching on soteriology that has ever come off the lips of men. Okay? Today, we have got at our access and our disposal some of the finest teaching in the history of the church from a host of, of, of good Bible teachers and scholars and preachers and evangelists. We, we've probably got more good stuff at our beck and call every day than any group of people has in the history of the church. Okay? It's everywhere. I mean, it's, if, if you wanted to invest yourself 24-7, 365, you can do that and never even scratch the surface. And the church today, I'm thinking, and this is, I'm thinking this because I'm, I'm sort of seeing this. The church today, by and large, has as good a handle on the teaching and the doctrines concerning salvation as probably at any point in church history. Okay? We know a lot about salvation But there's some other things that we don't know a whole lot about. And salvation, the teaching on salvation is critical and it's wonderful, it's great. It's, it's paramount in terms of the activity and the thrust of the church and what she does. Because if, if you leave the salvation message out of the gospel, you don't have anything. Okay, You have zero, nothing. You know, We can teach, and I'm just going to be honest here, we're a prophetic church. But I, we can teach on the prophetic all day long. We can demonstrate it all day long, but if we forget the fundamental aspect of the gospel is the salvation of sinners and expressing the love of God to them, then we have really missed a boat. Okay? Need to understand that. Just need to call it like it is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is designed to express the love of God and the need for repentance in order that those who are sinners can come to Jesus and be saved. That's just plain and simple. 
It does not get any more beautiful or any more wonderful than that. There's not a better thing we can do. Now, having said that, in order for us to be fully equipped to express the heart and the person of Jesus Christ, we need to know other stuff too. Because the other stuff is what brings us into maturity. It's what rounds us out. It's what gives us balance and stability. It's what allows us to have an answer to people who come into our assembly or sits down in in our office or at our table or people to approach us across the counter or in Walmart somewhere. The the being well-rounded and the coming into maturity is going to allow us to, to bring others along. Okay? And to let them begin to not only be saved, but come into a maturity of, of their identity in Jesus. Now, the thing about the church at Ephesus, and I'm not here to kick anybody, okay? But the thing about the church at Ephesus that expresses sort of where we could go if we're not careful, and the church at Ephesus had this, had this salvation message down, they were fundamentally strong, and... The Apostle Paul in his writings and his ministry was in a process of bringing them to maturity. Okay? But they missed something. And we're going, to look at the, we're going to look this morning at the scripture about what Paul taught and where the Ephesians were. And then we're going to do a comparison about where they are here and where the last word in scripture is concerning the church at Ephesus and see if we can draw uh, a conclusion or two and uh, something that would be well worth taking home with us this morning. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power to us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Now, Go back to the first slide just a second. Remember, Paul was in prison when he wrote to the church in Ephesus. But while he was in prison, word came to him from somebody concerning their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love unto all the saints. And he got excited. He became very, very happy. See, he had spent about two years in Ephesus when the church was founded. He'd ministered there for two years. They got bedrock teaching on salvation, on the blood covenant, on the mystery of Christ, on spiritual warfare, on the necessity and need for unity in the body. They received as well-rounded a teaching as they possibly could. His ministry was through there and his missionary journeys carried him to other places. Eventually, he winds up in prison and somebody brings him word and says something to this effect. Paul, guess what? The church in Ephesus, let me tell you about how much they love Jesus. Okay? Let me tell you about how much faith they have in the Lord Jesus. Let me tell you how... Their faith is demonstrated in the labor and the work of their hands. And oh, by the way, not only that, but let me tell you about how much they love each other. And so Paul receives this wonderful word. He receives this wonderful report about 
the faith of the church in Ephesus and how it was expressed, also how they loved each other. Listen, that is two great reports. What would it be like if every single assembly, church, home group, private devotion time, what would it be like if as the world looks at the church and what she's involved in and how she practices and demonstrates her faith and her vocation, what would it be like if the whole world could receive a report like this? Wow, everywhere the church is located, everywhere they meet, everywhere they sing, everywhere the message, their gospel message is brought out, everywhere they labor. I want you to know, can you see their faith? Look at what they're doing. But also, look at how they love each other. If, if, if the placard of the church could bear those two things, what would it be like? What would it be like? Would, would the world be a different place? Would America be a different place? Would Jessup be a different place? Would, would, would we be a different place here at PWAC? Those two things, those two simple things, faith in Jesus and the love for each other, are, the, are, are, are two of the basic characteristics that the church of Jesus Christ absolutely, totally must have in order to be able to impact the world that we're living in. Okay? Now, let's go just a little bit further with this. Oh, we went further too fast. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, thank you. So when Paul heard this, he automatically began thanking God for the church at Ephesus... And he began to engage in a prayer, what really, you know, I think is a prayer for maturity. Okay? So faith in the Lord Jesus and loving each other is sort of a baseline, those are baseline characteristics that the church can build on and go to maturity. Now, we're going to stop here just a second and we're going to go somewhere else. And I didn't give Sister Janie this scripture and... uh if, if she would pull it up for me, I'll give her just a second. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I, I want to show you something. And here, here's, here's the thing that kind of stuck out to me as I was, as I was going through this this week and looking at it. Now, you'll find, if you're not familiar with how I preach, you'll find I'm really simple. <laughs> I'm not complicated. Um... I'm just, I'm just simple, and I'm simple-minded. Watch this. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, right. Now, this is, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ that John received on the Isle of Patmos. Okay? Paul wrote Ephesians, and John wrote Revelation. These things saith he, or these things saith Christ, that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. The seven golden candlesticks are the churches uh, of Revelation. And he's speaking specifically here now to the church at Ephesus. I know your works and your labor and your patience and how you cannot bear them which are evil. And you've tried them which say they're apostles and are not and has found them liars and has borne and had patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Stay right here just a second. Oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. It's not a big deal. Okay. These are some positive things. That Jesus, the risen Lord of glory and the Christ, has to say about the church at Ephesus. He says, I know your works. Okay? I know your works. 
and I know your labor. And I know how patient you've been. And then he enters into a place where he says, I know you can't bear them which are evil. They had, they had also tried, and, and that, what that means is they had listened to and, and maybe sat under the teaching and observed the life of those who claimed to be apostles and were not, and they found them liars. How they have borne and how they've had patience, that's a positive thing, patience. And for my namesake, you've labored and has not fainted. Those are very positive things, but you can look at those things and you can tie it back over there to the, to the book that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesians and you can see that there were some things they carried right along in and some things they had grown in. But now let's go listen a little further. But, you know, have you ever noticed that when somebody says but? <laughs> but, or nevertheless, what that means is, but, I have somewhat or I've got something against you because you've left your first love. Remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come quickly and will remove the candlestick out of its place except you repent. But this you have that you hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the Nicolaitan is a doctrine that um, God hated with a passion in the early church. And simply put, uh, there was a guy named uh, Nicholas, and he had developed a doctrine and a good bit of followers, and they spread throughout the region of the early church in the first century, and the tenet of what Nicholas said was that you can sin all you want to, and because the grace of God is so strong, you'll be forgiven everything that you do. So therefore, go ahead and sin that Jesus' grace and forgiveness might abound. Okay. They hated it, and Jesus hates it. Okay, next slide. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So then, going back to Ephesians, Paul received report on the faith they had in the Lord Jesus and the love they had to one another. He begins to encourage them in points of maturity. As a matter of fact, the prayer he prays to God was, was given to him by the Holy Spirit to meet the needs that the church at Ephesus had to bring them to maturity. Okay? You with me? When Paul wrote the book of Ephesus, or what we call the book of Ephesus, between that day he was sitting in prison, and between the day, or, or until the day, that John uh, Jesus gave John the revelation of Jesus Christ, approximately 10 years had passed. Okay? 10 years had passed. And you may be thinking, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Why is that so important? Let me ask you all a question. Those of you who are probably older. This doesn't apply to teenagers because teenagers think that time never goes. It just so slow and drags along and it's like at Mickey Mouse speed. Those of you who are, let's say, 40 and older, how long does it take for 10 years to pass? Well, Roger answered that without even a word. He said, Those of you who are 50 and older, when you look back now, now you're probably eh, somewhere, I don't know, maybe 15 to 20 years sort of away from the heat of the battle raising your family and your kids, maybe, sort of generally speaking. When you look back at that wonderful little boy or girl who now instead of is little toddler, they're like 20 years old or older. When you look at them, you think, what? My, 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 how time has flown. 
And it doesn't matter how big Keith is, his mama always looks at him as a little fella. <laughs> That's right. And you wonder where the time has went. Trust me, teenagers. Trust me, when I, when I used to hear this kind of stuff, it just irked me. But trust me, it's going to make sense to you one day. The point here is how fast they grow up. What amazes me is, this is a little digression from the message, but I, I think it's applicable nonetheless. What amazes me is, and you moms and dads and, and those of you who are grandparent years can probably, you know, agree to this too what amazes me is 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 all the times you messed up how in in many cases how wonderful it all works out anyway but they grow up so fast and 10 years passes like that in 10 years the church at Ephesus had went to the place after they had been prayed for and blessed and had this wonderful correspondence sent to them after they had had the apostles come in and ministering and Timothy and Titus and the entourage of Paul after they had been after they had just absolutely had the had the um the wealth of God's grace dispensed on them it only took 10 years for Jesus to write or at least to write through the pen of John it took 10 years for them to get to the place where they had left off the first works. Now, you know, for a long time I struggled. What is the definition of the first works? I've thought about just any number of things. But I remembered back in the Gospels when the question was asked, What's the greatest commandment? And the man answered, To love God with all my heart, my soul, and my might. And then he was asked what the second one was. And he said, The second one is likened to it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And I really think this is what happened at the church at Ephesus. Is that they had left their first love, they had left obedience to the first two commandments and gotten tangled up in, in good stuff and doing good deeds and doing good work. But the heartbeat of God had left. Or maybe I should say their heartbeat for God had left. That's sad, isn't it? Now, we're just about at the bottom of this thing. We're fixed to climb up, okay? But I think, I think to me, as, as, I, as I read this stuff this week, to me, it came through loud and clear that, that my principal activity, my, my principal characteristic must totally and without exception be loving God and loving you just like there is no tomorrow. And all of the other extemporaneous and extenuous things in my life, they all must take second chair to loving God and to loving you. And when I say loving you, that's not at the exception of my wife and my family. They're embraced in that too. I have to love God and I have to love His people, if I fail at that, I fail at everything. It doesn't matter how wonderful I teach. It doesn't matter how great I dance. It doesn't matter how melodious my song. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter all of the people who get saved under my ministry or your ministry or who become equipped to walk in all the spiritual supernatural gifts. If I forget the debt that I owe an all-loving, eternal, matchless, gracious, loving God, if I forget 
what His Son has done for me. And I fail to respond to that in love every day with every expression of my mouth and breath of my being. If I forget that, then absolutely nothing else matters to Jesus. Nothing. Now understanding that, and this is where I came to this, understanding that, I don't think that we need to get 10 years from today and have regrets or have Jesus do this, knock on our shoulder or our door and say, hey, dude, can we have a little talk? <laughs> no, that would not be good. You know, I think Jesus communicates to you in the language of the day anyhow. Hey, dude, we need to have a talk here. Because you have missed the boat. You've become so busy in doing what you do. You've become so busy in putting out what you put out. You've become so busy in the externals that you've left off the internal dynamic of a relationship with me. And you have forgot about all the tools that I've given you to equip you to bring you to maturity. You see, I don't want to be this big now and and be this big ten years from now. What would it be like if you had a child who who never grew past age four? Today they were four and ten years from now they'll be 14. What if ten years from today the four-year-old is still the four-year-old? Would something be wrong? Everything would be miscued. So, what Paul does as he hears about their faith in the Lord Jesus, and as he hears about their love for each other, here's what he prays for. He gets so excited. And this is what he prays for. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. What was the, th- the third thing that he mentions there? He rejoiced in their faith. He rejoiced in their love for each other. But his prayer was that they would come into a knowledge of Him. Through wisdom and revelation. Now, I don't think wisdom, the spirit of wisdom here in Revelation is talking about the mystical revelation that we often say, you know, when we get a prophetic word or that sort of thing. I think this is more practical. I think it's a more practical thing. The spirit of wisdom and the revelation. In other words, how it's understanding the character and the nature of God. Okay, it's got this package here understanding the character and nature of God and being able to practically apply the principles or the characteristics of who God is in my life and in the world in which I live. How do I take who God is and make Him real in my life to demonstrate who He is in my life? In other words, if I have an understanding of the love of God, what would be the practical application, how would I be able to, to make that characteristic become real in my life? How would that work? Help me here. Okay, see the love of Jesus come through me. Practical outworking of that is to understand, to come to the, the wisdom and revelation of the love of God and understand that because God first loved me, I can love you. Okay, and then going from that, not only loving you, but taking you as you are, accepting you. Not only that, but if you've hurt my feelings, forgiving you. Okay, so there's a trickle-down effect to the characteristics and the attributes of an all-loving, all-wise Father in heaven. Okay, let's do another one. If I understand part of my revelation of who God is, if I understand that He is long-suffering, then how do I apply that? Being tolerant, 
suffering long with people. And sometimes it's a suffering point too, isn't it? People are people, aren't they? If I understand the characteristic of the long-suffering of God, I will be less likely to write people off when they are a little slower than I think they should be. When their revelation of who He is is not, doesn't compare and doesn't match up to my lofty revelation of who He is. You see what I'm saying? Not writing people off. Okay, another one. If I understand the faithfulness of God, then how would I apply that in my practical life, my practical applications in my life? How would that work? If I'm given wisdom and revelation on that, on the faithfulness of God, how would that apply in my life? No matter what, don't give up. What else? Anybody else got a suggestion? Learn patience. Patience has the perfect work. And out of that comes faith. If I understand the faithfulness of God, if I, if I have wisdom and revelation on the faithfulness of God, it allows me to be more faithful to Him, more faithful to you, more faithful to my family. It, it, it allows me to be able to encourage you to live faithful. You see? So Paul, understanding, I know this is probably getting old, but I'm trying to drive home a point here. Paul, understanding they had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they loved each other, he got to the place where there was three specific things that he wanted to pray for them. The first one was that they be matured in the knowledge of God. Second thing, verse 18. Let's see. Ah, la, 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 la. Okay, here we go. Oh, that was not a Muslim chant either, by the way. <laughs> I had to say that because somebody thought that. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope of His calling. What the riches of the glory of His inheritance is in the saints. The second major thing He prayed for them was that they would come to mature in the knowledge of their inheritance. Did you know you have an inheritance? Now, here's one of the cool things. But you may know what the hope of His calling, the riches of His glory of His inheritance in the saint. Did you know? Let's read the last part of that, okay? What the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Now, you know, the way most people approach the explanation of that phrase is that we have an inheritance in God. And God wants us to understand what that inheritance is. He wants us to embrace it. He wants us to study it. He wants us to, to have revelation on it. He wants us to have wisdom about it. He wants us to know what our inheritance is. And we do have an inheritance in Christ. Okay? We are heirs and joint heirs with Him. No question about that. But I don't think that's what this is talking about. I think what this is talking about is Paul is, is expressing to us in the middle of his prayer, at the beginning of his prayer, is that Jesus' inheritance. Listen to me. Jesus' inheritance is in us. Think about that for a minute. Jesus' inheritance is in us. How could that be? Well, it works this way. Christ has invested Himself in you through the work of the cross. He has invested His blood in you. He invested His life in you. Wherever God, think about that, listen, it's something I learned a long time ago. Wherever God makes an investment, He always has an inheritance. Okay? By virtue of the fact Christ has invested Himself in you, His inheritance 
is in you. And part of his glory and part of who he is, part of the return on his investment is developing you and bringing you to a place that reflects his character and his nature. The reason he saved you, the scripture, the New Testament works out this. There's a, there's a thread of doctrine that runs through the New Testament and even the, the whole Bible as far as that goes that says that Christ, he's, he, he saved us, he washed us in his blood, he was raised in resurrection power and glory and the purpose of him investing himself in us is to make us like him. Okay? To make us like Him. He wants us to reflect everything there is to reflect that's good and holy and just about Him. That's the way He displays Himself to the world. That's why you go through what you go through. You're involved, actively involved, and engaged in the process of you being made like Jesus. As I, was, as I was looking at that this week, I, I, I read some more in the book of Revelation. And there was something I have been struggling with for a long time. And I saw it revealed. And it made, it made, it made me understand. And I think I'll share this at another point in time. I'm not even going to go there now. I'm just going to leave it out there. And I'm going to... I'm going, to let, I'm going to let you uh, sort of think about what it could possibly be. Sort of, a, sort of a point of torment with you, if you would. Something I've been struggling with for a long time, and I saw the reason in Scripture today. Just, I mean, just a while ago, back there in the, in the office, as I was reading over this one last time, I saw why it is the way it is with my situation and circumstance. Would you like to know what it is? It's just killing you, isn't it? <laughs> well, not killing you. That's a bad word. It's just, it, it piques your interest. I may do that when we're done here. Let's see. What kind of time are we holding anyway? I just kind of look. This is unspiritual, I know. Okay. Do what, James? <laughs> See, the reason you go through what you're going through is to make you like Jesus. Okay? See, he has... He actually has an inheritance in you. And the ultimate end of your existence and your being is to bring Him glory. That's going to be the ultimate return on His investment in your life. Y'all, that's pretty cool when you come down to it. Okay. Third thing, and then we might go to the thing that um, I learned this week. I know you weren't wanting there real bad. Verse 19 through 20 on... Okay, now, he, he, he prays for their maturity and the knowledge of God. He prays for their maturity and the knowledge of their inheritance. And he also prays for their maturity and the knowledge of his power in the heavenlies. Watch this. And what the exceeding greatness of his power to us were to believe. According to that working of the strength of his might. Next verse which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Stop right there. Paul prayed that the church would become mature in their knowledge of the power of God which rested in Christ from the moment of his resurrection throughout eternity. There was an infusion of power that Christ received when he came out of that grave. Now, you know what the implications of that is? The implications of that is, is that when he came out of the grave and there was an infusion of power into him, by virtue of who you are and being saved, by having the living Christ dwelling in you, which is the mystery of the gospel, by virtue of that, you've got the power of the Godhead dwelling in you. You have the capacity living within you, the real potential, the real prospect of having victory over every single thing that comes against you. Read this a little further. Let's go. He raised him up, set him in heavenly places. Next slide. Did he say, does it say a little bit above all principality? No. 
Now, see, you've heard the fun, you heard the practical, fundament, the fundamental side of this thing a while ago. Here's where the here's here's where we get into the supernatural end of it. Far above all principality. What that means, principality is rule. Far above all rule and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Colon. Stop there for just a second. There's an investment in you. Paul prayed that the church at Ephesians would get a hold of this principle. He prayed that they would embrace it because the church at Ephesus had coming up, when he wrote this, the church at Ephesus, God knows everything, they had coming up uh, that was going to face them horrific spiritual warfare. They not only needed to know who Jesus was and who they were, but they needed to know what they had advantage of when all of the principalities and rulers and the powers of the air would come against them. Paul wanted them to know, God wanted them to know that resident in them was Jesus Christ who had been given power not just a little bit above all the principalities and all the powers and all the mights and all the dominions and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which to come. He wanted them to know that whatever was present in their life Whatever was here now or here to come or out there, they didn't even know about that. The person who lived in them through the, the exercising of his great power, nothing could stand in their way. Nothing could defeat them. It's not to say you won't get down every once in a while. But what that does say that Christ can't be defeated. And what it says is, you can't be defeated, not by anything that is here now that you know of, but anything that's yet to come that you don't know anything about. You see, the enemy is saving his, his worst until last. Jesus is saving his best until last. You can quote me on that. It doesn't matter what the economy does. It doesn't matter what your pantry looks like. It doesn't matter what your house looks like. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how how anything is out there. It doesn't matter what it looks like. The reality of the situation is right here, right there, Right here and right there. In that room over there, in the parking lot outside, in this wonderful county that we live in, everywhere there is oxygen on the face of this planet. It doesn't matter what the devil does, who he thinks he is, who you think he is. If we can get a handle, if the church today can get a handle on how they are to mature in the power and the revelation of God in their life, My, 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 my. It's just incredible, isn't it? What do you you think we would see if we could get a handle on the revelation of our inheritance of power? What do you think would happen? Huh? (laughs) Okay, let's just start on the commentary. What about uh, healing? Would we see remarkable healing? What about radical salvation? You know, I, I, this is just sort of an aside from all this. You know what I? You know, one of the areas that I think God wants to see, He wants the church to walk into. He wants the church to walk into the area of saving witches and people who are bound up in the occult. And from the looks of things, we're going to have a lot of practice in that area in the next decade or two because of the people who are falling into all sorts of uh, error and deception concerning uh, the occult and the power of Satan. We're going to have a lot of practice. I think, I think it's probably the heart of God that he wants us to do that. Is the church ready for that? No. Getting ready. The church is not ready for that yet. 
But you know what? Out of necessity, we're probably going to be brought into that era a lot faster than what we think. Of what we think we're ready for. That's right. You know, it's like Grandpa. You know what Grandpa taught his kids to swim? He took them out to the river on the bridge and he threw them off the bridge into the deep part of the river. The thing is this, is that Jesus who lives in you is ready. That's the truth of that. He's ready. We may not think we're ready, but all throughout the scripture, we can read instances where in wildernesses, in caves, in secluded areas, in 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 the night watches, God prepared people when they didn't even know they were being prepared for something that they were being prepared for. I think, I think the church today is being prepared for something that we don't know we're being prepared for. And you know what? Can't miss. Unless we choose to miss. Because the choice is ours. Okay, let's go a little further. I think we've been there long enough. Which is his body. Okay, that'd be great. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And has put all things under his feet and gave him, that is Jesus, to be the head over all things to the church. It doesn't... He is... Okay. The head... Over all things to the church. What it does not say that he would be the head over all things in the church, which he is. He is the head over all things. But it says that he would be the head over all things to the church, which means his, he is the church's sufficiency. He is the head over all things to the church. Whatever the church needs, go to Jesus and ask. Whatever the heart of God, which has been revealed to the church, is, let the church go to Jesus and ask. He wants to be head over all things to the church. He is. Which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all. This is a st- y'all, this, this last thing is a statement about how God views the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that fills all. In, in, as far as God's concerned, He has filled up the church with potential, with power, with grace, with love, with the, with the possibility for knowledge and revelation. He has filled up the church. 